you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Uh, Luke chapter 9, as we continue making our way through the gospel according to Luke, we're going to be in ver- chapter 9, verses 1 through 17 this morning. This morning's text draws our minds to a reality of God that brings us or should bring us incredible comfort, but one of which is also hard for us to fathom when we find ourselves in times of need. The theme of God's provision or God's providence is a theme that reverberates through the pages of Scripture and really echoes in the chambers of our hearts. It is a theme that beckons us to a deeper understanding, a more profound experience of unwavering, God's unwavering faithfulness in our lives. It's one of those things that we can articulate in words with unwavering confidence as, we, as the reality that, as the, of Romans 8 stands true, that God will not leave us, nor will He forsake us, that God will provide for us as He sees fit, and that He will preserve us. And while we verbally make these true declarations about God, and true they certainly are as Scripture attests to them, when the rubber hits the road, it is often God's provision or providence in our lives that we quickly cast aside as the trials and tribulations of life test our faith and our trust in God. In the grand narrative of God's Word, we encounter countless accounts of God's provision. From the manna in the wilderness sustaining the Israelites during their difficult journey to the miraculous feeding of the multitudes by the hands of the Lord Jesus that we will consider today, the Scriptures paint a vivid picture of God's abundant provision for His people. Yet the concept of God's provision extends far beyond the pages of Scripture. All of us have stories of how God has graciously provided for us or has reminded us of His sovereign hand in certain situations in our lives. We witness His provision each and every day in the daily sunrise that illuminates the world, in the rain that nourishes the earth, and in the breath that fills our lungs, God's provision in our lives. But His provision is, not, is also not just confined to the physical sustenance alone. Most importantly, it encompasses the depth of our spiritual hunger, the longing of our souls for meaning and purpose and hope and peace, all of which are found in and given to us by God. I pray this morning that as we work our way through this text, we will recognize that God's provision is not a distant, abstract concept, but it's an intimate, personal reality for all of those who know Christ as Lord. It's an invitation for us to trust Him radically, to surrender our fears, to surrender our anxieties and our uncertainties to Him, walking in obedience in accordance with His Word. And in this surrender... In this trust, trust that is not some kind of far-fetched wish, but trust that is rooted in the Creator of all things, the Sovereign of the universe, in this 
trust, we find the freedom that comes with relinquishing control as His divine will prevails in our lives as we trust Him in all circumstances. May we trust the promises of Scripture as they declare the unchanging truths about God and His provision for His people. So if you're able, would you stand as I read Luke chapter 9? I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. The Word of God reads in Luke 9, 1 through 17. And He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And He said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever, whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all they, that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. For we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about fifty each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful for your grace and for your mercy and your provision in our lives. God, we rely solely upon you for all things, so much so that we declare boldly, confidently, and loudly this morning that we need you every hour. Not only do we need you every hour, we need you every second of every day. God, we need you in this moment. We need you in your spirit to do a work through your proclaimed word this morning. And God, I pray that as your people have gathered to hear a word from you, I pray that you would communicate to us from your holy word exactly what each of us need to hear, that you would meet our needs, that you would open our eyes, that you would give us ears to hear, and that we would walk out of this place confident in the God of our salvation who looks over us, guides us, directs us, and whose provision is always upon us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
So up until this point in Luke's account of Jesus' life and ministry, as we have been tracking along with him through the previous uh, chapters, Jesus' mission has been largely a solitary mission. With the exception of some preaching from John the Baptist regarding the inauguration of the kingdom of God and the need for repentance, Jesus has been really the only other person preaching the good news of the kingdom we see in chapter 4, verse 3, and chapter 8, verse 1, and then performing powerful signs of the kingdom's arrival. We see this in 721 and 822 through 56. But now is a, uh, now a change is ushered in as Jesus summons the twelve, we see in verse 1, and then sends them out in verse 2 with a twofold mission that mirrors Jesus' own actions up to this point to proclaim the good news, the, the kingdom of God, and to heal. And so the one-man show has now become a group enterprise as Jesus is empowering and commissioning the disciples to do likewise. And so in this text today, as we consider the provision of God and God's provision in our lives and over the lives of His people, we see two instances of God's provision. We see provision in the life of the twelve as He sends them out on their mission, and we see His provision over this great crowd that was gathered around Him as He feeds them uh, physically. And so my first observation from this text is simply this, God's provision through sending disciples. God's provision through sending disciples. We see this in verses 1 through 6. So let's think for a moment of the disciples, all right? Quite an interesting group of people. We have gained little insight into who they are and what they were uh, like already uh, in our time. We have an idea of what type of guys they were, but as far as the day-to-day, we're not quite sure. But what we do know is that that the disciples were ordinary men just like you and just like me, chosen by Jesus himself. We know that Jesus didn't pick the noble or the mighty. He chose the humble and the common. He didn't choose the Pharisees. He didn't choose the learned. He chose the fishermen. He chose the blue-collar workers. He chose those who were just a part of this society. In fact, if you think about the disciples and we think about those whom the Son of God has called to himself, if we just think A little ways back in Luke's narrative, it wasn't too long ago where the disciples who were already following Jesus were still trying to figure out who he was. Here are these disciples, even after following him for some time, seeing him do and teach amazing things. They're on a boat with him. They think they're going to die. He does this great miracle in calming the storm and and, uh, preserving their lives as best they knew. And then they look at each other and they go, who is this guy? Who in the world is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? These are the guys that are following Jesus, that are with him around the clock. And they're still going, who in the world is this guy? All right, just common folks. And so as this passage opens up, I want you to notice the order of events here. The disciples are first summoned by Jesus, and then the disciples are sent out by Jesus. You see, nothing that we have seen so far would make us think that the disciples are prepared or qualified for such a mission. All we've seen so far is them really trying to come to grips with who Jesus is. 
potentially doubting Jesus as they think that he's going to lead them to drown in the Sea of Galilee. But what Luke tells us is that Jesus calls them to himself and that Jesus gave them power and gave them authority, the, one, the very power and authority that they would need in order to drive out all demons and uh, cure diseases. And so this is a reminder to us that God's provision does not depend upon our own qualifications or abilities. God's provision does not depend upon us and our ability to do great things. It flows from His divine purpose and His sovereign choice, His sovereign will. You see, what Jesus does, and this is true of you and it's true of me, Jesus takes the unqualified and He makes them qualified. Jesus takes the unqualified and makes them qualified, and all of this happens through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And the same is true for us. We are naturally unrighteous, naturally unqualified for Christ. We are naturally sinners. There is nothing in us that makes us qualified first to know Christ, second to serve Christ. We are totally incapable of these things. Now, we're not commissioned in the same way as the apostles are commissioned. But in a similar way to the empowering of the twelve, Jesus also gives us His Spirit in salvation that empowers us and qualifies us to accomplish the work of ministry in our daily lives. That's why we're here, Ephesians chapter 4, to be equipped to go out and do the work of ministry. That begins with the Spirit of the living God. And so it is the Spirit who equips us with spiritual gifts, with talents and abilities to serve the body of Christ and the world around us. Some are gifted in teaching. Some are gifted in hospitality. Some are gifted in leadership. Some are gifted in acts of mercy. Some are gifted in music. Each gift, no matter how seemingly small, is vital to the body of Christ. No matter what it looks like, no matter whether it's behind the scenes or whether it's out front, vital to the body of Christ. It's by the Spirit's enablement that we fulfill our roles in the kingdom of God. God has providentially called us to Himself in salvation, and He has providentially empowered us with His Spirit at salvation to carry out the work of ministry here on earth. And we all need to realize, church, and we all need to recognize that God's desire for you and God's desire for me is to carry out His kingdom work here on earth until He returns. This is the great commission that's been given to all of us. You may feel unqualified, you may feel unprepared, and yes, in your own strength, you certainly are. But in God's providence, as we do the work of ministry, not just in this place, but in every avenue in which we find ourselves in, you need to be confident that His Spirit will enable you and provide for you in the time of need as we share Christ and minister to those around us. He makes us qualified and He prepares us. It's so encouraging oftentimes I hear from many of you in the conversations that you're having with coworkers or neighbors or friends or family about Christ. That's the work of ministry. 
that's being carried out just in your everyday lives as you live and as you uh, go about your business living a gospel-centered life, as you parent your children, the conversations you're having with your children, as you drive down the road, it's the work of ministry. And so as Jesus empowers the twelve to accomplish the mission He sets them out on, that's when He asks them to trust in His providence and obey Him. His instructions for the twelve, and it's quite interesting if you ask me, begin with what he sh- they shouldn't bring with them. Don't bring a staff. Don't bring a bag. Don't bring food. Don't bring any money. Don't even bring an extra shirt. Don't bring an extra tunic. Go out, do these things, but bring nothing that you will need for everyday living. Then what in the world are they to do? Walk around? I mean, think about how many people really want to get close to them when they're not smelling that great because they don't have their extra shirt, right? What does he ask them to do? Trust God. Trust God. As the disciples go out, Jesus denies them of all the things they would normally depend upon for this long journey. And in doing so, they will be continually aware of their need and dependence on God. Their mission will require them to act on their faith in Jesus. Surely, their debrief with Jesus upon their return, we see in verse 10, contained many examples of the Lord's provision for all of their needs. Don't take any of this stuff with you. Just rely on God and He will provide for you. Additionally, along the way, there are specific ways that Jesus would have the disciples to interact with people they meet. Once they get to a town, they should be gracious guests, staying in one house if possible, he says in verse 4, rather than looking for an upgrade in accommodations. It's like going to this person's house and then going, well, so-and-so down the street, they got a bigger house and better food. They said I could come sleep here, so good luck to you. I'm going down the street. No, he says, be gracious guests. Stay in one house if possible. If they do not receive a welcome in a certain location, they should treat the town as if it were an unclean heathen village. Shake the dust off of your feet, the dust of the town off of your feet, he says in verse 5, lest it follow them and pollute the next place to which they should go. Common Jewish practice. Failure to respond to the proclamation of the good news has dire consequences. Jesus is saying. And so in sending these disciples, as Jesus sends out the twelve, we witness the magnificent interplay of divine authority and human obedience here. The disciples were not sent out on their own whim or on their own fancy. They were commissioned by the very Son of God. They were entrusted with the eternal message of salvation. What a weighty responsibility, church, but also what a glorious privilege to take the gospel. Their authority was not self-derived. It was not bestowed upon them by the, it was bestowed upon them by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Even in the face of opposition, the disciples could be confident knowing the source of their commission even in the face of rejection. And hear this, the rejection was not a rejection of them. It was a rejection of the gospel. Which generally when people reject us and the good news that we are seeking to give them of Jesus Christ, when they reject us, it's not a rejection of us, it's a rejection of the truth and the message that we are conveying. 
Venturing out without any of the regular provisions one would take on a journey was a great step of obedience, one of which had to trust in the providential hand of God. Walking by faith and trusting in God to provide is not always easy, is it? Obedience requires surrender. A surrender of our desires, a surrender of our plans, a surrender sometimes even of our comfort. It demands trust, deep trust in the character of God, deep trust in the promises of God. We must believe, as God's Word tells us, we must believe that His plans for us are good. That His ways are higher even when we can't get the full picture. The disciples didn't have all the answers. They didn't know where their food was going to come from. They didn't know where their shelter would be. But what did they do? They simply obeyed. God's providence is not a distant, abstract concept. It's a tangible reality experienced in the obedience of His people. We can obediently follow and trust the Lord because His promises are true for us. He will keep us. When you read the promises of God in Scripture for His people, they are true. His provision is always with those who faithfully follow His command. Follow Christ, trusting that God will providently empower you, lead you, guide you, protect you, and keep you no matter what may come your way. Second observation. God's provision through feeding the 5,000. We see this in verses 10 through 17. A common story. We're all familiar with this story. It's one of those we learn as kids, right? And we marvel at what Christ has done. But before we move into the part, this part of the text, let me make some brief notes about the verses sandwiched in between these two stories. If you look at chapter 9, verses 7 through 9, it says, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all the, that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old has a, had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So Luke has already warned his readers that John has been imprisoned by Herod Antipas. We see this in verse three, uh, chapter 3, 19 and 20. But now we discover that through the Tetrarch's private musings that John was beheaded. He says this in verse 9. But when Herod became aware of all that was going on, we're told in verse 7, that he was perplexed. All that was going on with Jesus, he was perplexed by the opinions about Jesus that were circulating. And there are three lines of speculation. That Jesus might be John returned from the dead, Elijah or another prophet of old. And these are reflected in Peter's response to Jesus' questions as we will see uh, next week in verses 18 and 19. And so Herod's question about Jesus boils down to one that is familiar to all of us by now, made familiar by the disciples, who is this? Who is this? Hearing these things about Jesus, who is this Jesus? Well, in order to answer this question, Herod sought to see Jesus, a wish that would be fulfilled in the final scenes of Jesus' earthly life we see in chapter 23, 8 through 11. 
And at that time, it would become clear that Herod's interest in Jesus is limited to seeing a sign from him, a desire that Jesus would not indulge and that would result in Herod treating Jesus with contempt. Speculation about Jesus during this time, think about that, has reached so far, even as far as the palace. Think about speculation about someone reaching the White House, maybe, in our own country. But even the ruler of the land, Herod, lacks clarity about who Jesus really is. And so by including this brief digression here in the middle of these two stories, Luke is preparing us to appreciate Peter's startling clear confession of Jesus as the Christ in the coming section that we'll consider next week. And so now let's turn our attention to verses 10 through 17 and God's provision in the feeding of all these people. With the disciples having returned to Jesus from their mission as itinerant preachers, healing and proclaiming the kingdom of God, they all withdraw by themselves to a town called Bethsaida, we're told in verse 10, which is just north of the Sea of Galilee. But as they, as they sought some rest, as they sought some isolation from these crowds and their travels there, their isolation did not last very long. We're told that the crowds quickly discovered where they were located and they began to follow them. And as the crowds followed, despite the weariness of the disciples uh, that they surely had in hopes of withdrawing and getting some rest on their own, Jesus welcomed the crowds. And in welcoming them and in following the pattern we have come to expect from His ministry, He taught them and He healed those in need of help, we're told in verse 11. And so the presence of so many people means that Jesus' little band of disciples had no hope of being by themselves. However, as we see, it turns out that the great crowd comes, with the great crowd comes a far more pressing concern, probably one that us good Baptists understand really well. As the day goes on, a potential crisis is brewing. How are they going to eat? Right? There is no way to provide food for a crowd of this size in such a remote place. They couldn't just run down and buy a bucket of chicken, all right? Or 5,000 buckets of chicken. What would they do? Well, the disciples, like you and I probably, being the pragmatists that they are, they don't look to Jesus and go, hey, guy who raises the dead, who heals the sick, who calms the storm, why don't you do something awesome? They don't do that at all. They suggest that Jesus submiss, uh, dismiss the crowd into the surrounding area to find food and a place to stay. Send them away. We have no food. We have no lodging. We have nothing for these people. And for us, church, the reality is this. That is a perfectly logical suggestion in a situation like this, isn't it? Can't feed you. If you're hungry, probably want to find another place. But Jesus had another solution. Jesus looked at them. They said, hey, we need to send them out to go get food. Jesus looks at them and He says, give them something to eat. Come again? Give them something to eat. 
Well, this seems much less reasonable in the face of the scarcity of resources. Five loaves and two fish would not make a dent in the hunger of 5,000 men. That's not including women and children that would have been present. 5,000 men. And the cost of buying that much food, even if we could find that much food in the surrounding regions, it's impossible. Yet again, Jesus has brought his disciples into a situation where the needs of the moment far outstrip the resources and abilities. And just as in the previous situations, Jesus uses the difficult circumstances to display his divine power and provision to instruct his disciples. If you think about it, think about it. Jesus could have fed this crowd by himself, right? Jesus can do anything he wants. But in his kindness, he involved the disciples in the work. And as a result, they got the joy of service and a lesson about Jesus' power and provision. And in the same way, Jesus still involves his people in the work of ministry, giving us more resources than we need so that we can have the joy of, of then caring for others. And just as the disciples could only go out and preach and cure diseases and cast out demons because Jesus gave them power and authority, so they could only obey his commands to feed the crowd if Jesus himself miraculously provided the bread. He says, feed the people. Well, they can't feed the people unless Jesus does something. Go preach and heal diseases. Well, they can't do that unless Jesus first does something. Empowers them to do it. And in verse 16, that's exactly what happened. As Jesus gives thanks for the bread, uh, gives thanks for the bread, then gives it to the disciples to distribute among the people. And they minister to the people, but only because Jesus has provided them everything they need to do so. The pattern, that pattern holds true for the disciples of Jesus today. All of us who have called upon Christ for salvation, we have nothing to give away to others unless Christ has given us the power and resources we need. And even if we do not have enough bread to feed 5,000 people, we have what money cannot buy, and that is the free message of salvation. Luke's account of this miracle is rich with Old Testament echoes about provision. The command to split the crowd up into groups of 50 each is reminiscent of the ministries of Moses in Exodus 18.21 and Deuteronomy 1.15 and Elijah in 1 Kings 18.13. The provision of bread in a remote place is reminiscent of the Lord's gift of manna in the Israelites' flight from Egypt in Exodus 16, verses 14 and 15, a story that will be brought to the front in the upcoming transfiguration narrative. The 12 basketfuls that were gathered remind us of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the point is that Jesus is the one who is able to provide richly for Israel, and now as the true Israel, all of those who would repent and follow Christ. Isaiah had seen a coming day when the Lord would provide for His people a rich, a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines in Isaiah 25 verse 6. 
when Jesus provides a feast for his people, church, it is abundant, it is good, and it is satisfying. You see, Luke stresses that everyone who was there ate and was satisfied. And even after everyone ate as much as they wanted, they had plenty left over. Jesus' resources were nowhere close to being exhausted. Eating food, think about it, is a universal and intimate experience. If you invite someone into your home to share a meal, or you go out to eat with someone, you're entering into a time that is beyond surface level. You're about to chat, or you're going to sit there and just in silence the whole time. It's just going to be weird. But it's no wonder that food and feasting and eating are so frequently used as spiritual metaphors in Scripture. I have a friend of mine who wrote his Ph.D. dissertation on food as a metaphor. In, uh, it may have been Luke's, it was Luke's Gospel, I believe. And so it's that prevalent in Scripture. Spiritual blessings are sometimes described in terms of physical food. Mary understood that God is the one who has filled the hungry with good things in, one, in chapter 1, verse 53. And here we see the truth of this enacted. Jesus calls himself the bread of life in John 6, 35, and even demands that we feast on him if we are to be his disciples. And so when we see Jesus providing bread for the masses, like in an account like this, we should be alerted to the fact that there is a much deeper truth being illustrated here. It speaks of a God who meets our deepest needs, who satisfies our deepest hunger, not just for bread, but for purpose, for meaning, for hope, for peace, for eternal life. Even in places where physical food is abundant, there is a spiritual hunger that abounds in every human heart. Our souls, church, don't miss this. If you've missed anything up to this point, don't miss this. Our souls all long for peace. They long for meaning. They long for purpose that can only come from knowing God and being known by Him. Many of the great tragedies we see in our culture with people and things that they are pursuing and doing to themselves are all in search for meaning and purpose. In the absence of peace, in the absence of meaning, in the absence of purpose, people will look to a number of places to find deep soul satisfaction. They'll look to success in business or life or in their jobs. They'll look to money. They'll look to entertainment, relationships, sex, family, even religious performance. And all of those things are very good in their proper context. But none of them can bear the weight of our soul's longing. None of them can satisfy the hunger of our hearts. Like a thirsty man drinking seawater, the more we consume of these things to quench our soul's longing, the worse the problem becomes. The problem is not primarily with our desire for satisfaction. We all desire satisfaction. We all want to be satisfied. It's not in the desire. Rather, it's where we look for satisfaction. 
It's an expression of our fallen nature that we look for fulfillment in such unsatisfying places. Jesus fed these 5,000 men, but His purpose was not just to feed them physically and send them on their way. Jesus didn't come to just give us things to satisfy our fleshly desires or our fleshly appetites. He didn't come just to give us a comfortable life in ease and health and wealth and prosperity. Jesus came to satisfy the deeper hunger in our souls. A hunger that can only be satisfied through knowing Christ as Savior and Lord. A hunger that can only be satisfied by bringing peace to our weary hearts. A hunger that can only be satisfied when there is peace with God. All of this comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. As one pastor faithfully preached, Jesus did not come to give bread, He came to be the bread. That is, He didn't come just to give us stuff. He came so that we would feast upon Him, the one who satisfies the deepest hungers within us. In in this miraculous provision, we see the divine pattern of God's grace. We are the hungry multitude. We are longing for fulfillment. We are searching for meaning. And God in His infinite love provides for us abundantly through Jesus Christ. Jesus can feed our starving souls until they can't eat anymore. And He has promised that those who hunger will be satisfied. In chapter 6, verse 21. In that remote place, everyone was hungry. And there, with no other means of provision, every single person who looked to Jesus for help was able to eat until he was fully satisfied. That is the hope for us, church. That we can come to Jesus with our seemingly insurmountable need and find that He will satisfy us completely. And so the question really for us, whether you're a new believer, just born again, whether you're not born again, or whether you've been walking with the Lord for 50 years, the question still remains, will you come to Christ? Will you seek Christ and truly be satisfied? I wonder this morning if you can feel the hunger of your soul. This passage paints a very clear picture of God's provision, both physically and spiritually. We witness the compassionate heart of our Savior who not only fed the hungry multitude, but also empowered His disciples to be instruments of His provision. Let us see this, church. Let us meditate on the fact that our deepest hunger, our most profound need, can only be satisfied with Christ. In a world that constantly bombards, and teenagers and children listen to this very clearly, in a world that constantly bombards us with messages of temporary satisfaction through material possessions, through accomplishments, or fleeting pleasures, Jesus stands as the eternal answer to the longing of our souls. He is the bread of life, the source of everlasting nourishment. When we turn to Him, when we partake of His grace and mercy, we find a satisfaction that goes beyond the the temporal, a fulfillment that transcends the fleeting pleasures of this world. And this satisfaction is not contingent on our circumstances. You can be in the hospital dying 
and satisfied in Christ. It's not contingent on our circumstances. It's not determined by the ebb and flow of life's challenges. No, it is a steadfast assurance rooted in the unchanging character of our Savior. When we abide in Him, we find our joy in His presence. We discover a peace that surpasses all understanding, a joy that remains unshakable regardless of life's circumstances that change. Moreover, our satisfaction in Christ compels us to share this abundant grace with others. Just as the disciples distributed the the multiplied loaves and fish to the hungry crowd, we are called to be channels of God's provision and love. Our satisfaction in Christ overflows into acts of kindness, into compassion and generosity, touching the lives of those around us. Through our actions, we become living testimonies of the transformative power of Christ. And so church, let us carry with us the profound truth that our ultimate satisfaction is found in Christ alone and that He will providentially provide for us. May we seek Him earnestly, abide in His love, and find our deepest fulfillment in His presence. And as we do that, let us extend His love to a world hungering, starving for meaning and purpose offering the satisfying nourishment that only He can provide. And may we be satisfied in Christ, rooted in His grace and overflowing with His love. And to Him be all glory, honor, and praise now and forevermore. Amen. Pray with me.